the web at WERU.org. It is just before 4 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Dan Luther, is up next. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the first program in our series this year to broadcast at our new time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about Census 2020, Everyone Counts. We'll talk about the upcoming decennial census, how it's going to work, problems on the horizon, and the consequences for Maine and the nation. We'll be taking your questions during the second half of the show, so stand by to join our conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us by phone from Wisconsin is Margo Anderson. Margo is the Distinguished Professor Emerita of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She authored the book, The American Census, A Social History. Welcome, Margo. Also Thank joining you for having me. Hey, yeah. So glad to have you here, Margo. Um, you were on our show, I think, in 2017 on this topic, and a lot has happened since, so we're looking forward to the update. Also joining us by phone today, I think, is Matt Dunlap. Matt is Secretary of State for the State of Maine and Chair of the State's Complete Count Committee. I think we're trying to get Matt on the phone now, and we'll um, connect him as soon as he's able to join. Aaron Sorkin was a screenwriter for the TV show West Wing when they did an episode about the census. Sorkin said, you just said the word census and people fall asleep. But we're going to try to keep you awake for the next hour, talking about the upcoming census every 10 years. Is the accuracy of the 2020 census at risk? Are there partisan implications and motivations at play? Why should we care? Um, Margot, let me put it to you first. Why has the census all of a sudden gotten to be such a hot topic? Well, it gets to be a hot topic um, every 10 years uh, about this time uh, because uh, if you know your American history, you'll, you may know that the, the census is part of the original Constitution from 1787, where the founding fathers said to uh, the American people, we're going to count you every 10 years on the year zero, um, and we're going to use those uh, the numbers we get to allocate uh, representation in the House of Representat- Representatives and the Electoral College. And, uh, of course, we also now use those numbers uh, for state legislatures and local governments and and for funding allocations. And we've been doing that every 10 years on the year zero since 1790. So this will be the 24th. Um, Because it's such a long period between counts, people sort of forget about it. And then when it comes up again, we do a public relations blitz, uh, as we're doing now, to to remind people, yes, we've done this before, and we'll likely do it again. So that's where we are right now. Well, Margo, weeks away to, from the start. Right. I, I've been through a few decades of censuses myself, you know, naming no actual numbers, but it seems a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, controversial this year than it has any time in my lifetime before. What's going on with that? 
Well, it is controversial this year. Um, uh, often it's controversial after the census when people see the numbers and aren't quite sure what, what to make of them. Uh, but this year in uh, 2018, um, the Trump administration put in a, uh, a, re- not a request, a command to the Census Bureau that they add a question on citizenship to the form at a very late hour. It takes a long time to plan a census. And... Um, and the Census Bureau was not happy about that, the professionals there. And state and local officials um, were very concerned, like, why are we doing this at the late hour? It hadn't been tested to see how whether people would understand the question. And a series of lawsuits broke out almost immediately, which um, went from the spring of 18 until uh, the Supreme Court actually settled the matter, ruling the question off the form in June of 2019. So for that year, if you will, a little over a year, there was a lot of debate about the uh, usefulness of the data, whether we should do it, whether we had the data another way. And um, so in some ways, that is why, in some ways, some of the hoopla about the census uh, sort of showed up a year, a year and a half early, (laughs) if you will. Is it also, I mean, we hear about that it's being underfunded, and obviously they're testing out some new methods mm-hmm. this year. Right. Um, you know, are, are there potentially political motivations behind that as well? Well, every the, the census is like a, a, a one massive balloon payment for the federal government. So it comes up as a multi-billion dollar expense, but once every 10 years. So Congress always has sticker shock that, <laughs> that they're going to have to pay for it. So that's you see that um, in uh, every census going back to the you know, 18th century. The, um, the, the other issue that always comes up in a slightly different form each decade is how are we going to do it? What's the technology that we're going to use? And this decade, of course, um, we're going to try to use uh, the, an Internet response for the majority of American households, which is a very new thing. Um, there have been... Um, the federal government uses internet survey response in its other surveys, but we haven't used it in a massive form on the census before. And so there's been a lot of planning and debate about whether it would work and so forth. There was a, there was, there were, um, because you only get one shot at doing this. So it's a, um, there's a lot wrapped up in the controversy, uh, in the, in the question of whether they've got it all right. And, you know, and whether the security works and so forth. Uh, Australia and New Zealand and Canada have been working on this as well. The um, Australians in particular ran into trouble in 2016 uh, with systems crashing, and that is not a good um, precedent for what we're about to do. Oops. Uh, Matt, I welcome to the program. Matt, I understand you're on the line now. Say I hello. am, yes. Say hello. Um, why does it matter to the people of Maine whether we have a reliable census or not? Well, for a lot of reasons that should be obvious but aren't. I mean, when governments do planning, they often plan projects around population centers. Um, so having good numbers is really, really important. Of course, you know, we've been, you know, we've been doing censuses throughout human history, probably ever since we started counting things. And it's all for that very reason. It's like, where do you put your most expensive infrastructure? Um, where do you where do you concentrate your school funding? Where do you concentrate um, programs for 
for farm development and social welfare. Um, this is worth, to the state of Maine, millions upon millions of dollars one way or the other. Um, I first became familiar with the census uh, as a legislator. Of course, you know, I've been a part of the census my whole life. <laughs> you know, I, I think I was counted for the first time. I was probably about six years old. Um, but and you don't think much about it. And it's actually really, really simple to do. And that's maybe why we don't think very much about it. But I was the uh, one of three chairs of the 2003 Redistricting Commission. And this is something that states have to do every 10 years, and that is redraw uh, district lines for the congressional seats, state senate, state legislature, county commission, because the populations do shift. Um, people you know, will see explosions of growth, and then you'll have a major industry shut down and everybody migrates out. Um, and the, and the, the premise there is you, know, you want to have uh, proportional as, or as much as possible equal representation in, in your representative democracy. And this is something, these are the building blocks. And I learned a lot about how the census is constructed in that, in that exercise. Well, and I mean, that's an excellent question, because if there's a threat of an undercount, you know, from one state to the next, um, can't states then be at risk for, let's say, losing a congressional district, or if you're on the winning side, gaining a congressional district? I mean, the states have a lot at stake to make sure that they're people are fully counted. Is that right, Margo? Yeah, I mean, the America, I, I think what we've just heard is exactly right in, in, in the sense that the U.S. population, I, I've argued, is one of the most dynamic and diverse in the history of the world. Um, we don't grow as fast as a nation now as we used to, but in for the first almost 100 years, there were 30 to 35 percent more Americans in the next census as there were in the previous one. So things so it, it so there's this growth, and then there's what is called differential change. So some areas grow faster than another, and uh, at the national level, of course, this means that seats in Congress will shift to the parts of the country that uh, where where um, uh, that are growing, and away from those where it isn't growing. Uh, as far as I understand, I mean Maine has two congressional seats. Um, I, I I defer to the local experts on whether there's any threat to those seats. I, I don't think so. What do you think, man? Right? Well, well, I think, you know, and, and again, all these congressional yeah. districts are somewhat different populations. I mean, mm -hmm. the way we, the way, and I'm, I'm probably it's a little bit easier to describe on the state level where you have mm -hmm. 151 yep. members of the House and 35 senators. So you take the, the numbers from the census and mm -hmm. you divide them by those numbers, 151 and 35. And that gives you the ideal district size, and you try to stay within 5% of that number. However, with the, with the U.S. House, some of these congressional districts can have, you know, 100,000 more people in one district in one state versus, you know, districts in other states. And I think realistically, you know, there are other states that are probably a lot closer to losing congressional districts than Maine is. And Maine in 1850 had eight congressional seats. It was hard to believe now, but that's, you know, to Margo's point, that's how dynamic our national population is. I mean, we had a huge out-migration um, in the early 1800s because of, of some severe weather 
that was going on at the time. Uh, we, obviously, we rebounded from that. Then we had a, a, a pretty steady growth right through the 19th century, and it's grown steadily since then, and it's kind of more or less leveled off over the last 50 years. But, you know, those numbers, when you talk about legislative districts, when Loring Air Force Base closed in the, in the 1990s, or actually, yeah, it was the 1990s it closed, you know, Limestone's population went from almost 9,000 people to about 2,800 within 10 years. Well, so, so the state representative there represented 2,800 people in the legislature, whereas the town of Buxton, their population had doubled. So uh, Limestone had much stronger representation, if you will, per capita than Buxton did. And that's why the, that's why that redistricting process has to happen every 10 years, and it relies one hundred percent on accurate census data. Well, and Margo, you started to talk about Texas, which is mm-hmm. investing nothing, I guess, in um, bolstering federal efforts to have a complete count in their state, vis-a-vis California, which is mm-hmm. apparently investing quite a bit to make sure that all of their people get counted. I mean, how, you know, if the federal government is leaving a vacuum here that the states feel incumbent upon themselves to fill it doesn't that mean there's going to be some sort of unevenness in terms of the representation well you know this is actually this is a very new um phenomenon which is that the massive and and different levels of effort that different states and local governments are putting in uh i mean up until 20 or 30 years ago the overwhelming work that went into the census was done by the federal government and states and localities did relatively little um as the uh, controversies initially about the, the differential undercount of minorities in the urban areas and the poor hit in the late uh, 20th century, um, areas that were, you know, states and local areas that were affected by that began to pay a lot more attention and build uh, much more stronger um, census outreach efforts. And that's what you're sort of seeing in California. They've been at it for decades, if you will, and so is New York and. Um, and, and so forth. Other areas <coughs> of the country, um, either because of you know uh, reluctance to spend money at the state level, I think that's partially from you know some some of what's going on in Texas. Um, and, you know, but I think there are, there are plain, great plain states that also aren't doing very much uh, on the census. Um, so that we've got we're you know we're in sort of in a new environment now to see whether what difference that makes. <laughs> if anything, um, by the way, in the 19th century, there were similar battles over as 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 uh, local officials discovered that the quality of the count could vary, um, you know, across cities and states. And so, you know, we started doing recount census recounts in the 1870s. Really? Right? For, yeah. No, it's an old problem. <coughs> That's. Um, so New York and Philadelphia and Indianapolis, Indiana and Tacoma, Washington. I mean, I could give you dozens of examples of either um, local areas complaining that their count was done badly or, uh, more nefariously, um, local uh, officials doing what was called padding the, 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 uh, the census. That was the case in Tacoma, Washington in 1910. They added, um, on a population of 80,000, they, quote, discovered 30,000 more people. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the feds caught them. 
and prosecuted the uh, local officials for what they called census fraud. Um, wow. That stopped because it became, you know, the, the Census Bureau until 1902 was a temporary agency, and they didn't have much administrative capacity to deal with the sort of local shenanigans. But after that, you know, that that was one of the, that was probably the worst case, and then it, that that problem stopped. Listen, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU this afternoon. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is Census 2020, Everyone Counts. Our guest this afternoon are Margot Anderson, Distinguished Professor Emerita of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She authored the book, The American Census, A Social History. And we also have with us Matt Dunlap. Matt is Maine's 49th Secretary of State, now serving in his fourth consecutive term and his seventh term overall. He also chairs the state's Complete Count Committee. So, Matt, what is the Complete Count Committee, and why have these committees been set up? I know, you know, the state has one. Lots of nonprofits have them. The League of Women Voters is a Complete Count Committee. What What is with that? Well, at the very core of it is the idea to get the word out about the importance of the census so that people aren't afraid of it or, or don't distrust it. Um, and this is this is a huge challenge, as, as Margot indicates, is that, you know, you want people to to trust it, uh, to trust the fact that it's okay if they participate in the process. Because if they don't participate, like I said, you know, that not only we, the whole issue of round, around redistricting, but also, as we mentioned, the allocation of, of, of tax dollars for a whole host of purposes, including transportation, health care, et cetera. So what, Could, is, what is Maine doing as a state? To ha- well, I mean, are there specific programs? You know, well, as you mentioned, I'm the chair of the Complete Count Committee, and this is something that the census is, is really promoting, are the formation of Complete Count Committees. And we have close to 130 of them around the state. A lot of communities have them, nonprofits like like the League of Women Voters, uh, in, and in the Ellsworth area, Friends in Action has a complete count committee. So, and, and the idea uh, is to come up with different ideas, and, and, you know, money is tight. And we were visited by the census in my office last year around getting the state to help, and they wanted to get, they wanted to, you know, get hold of, of completing information, not original information, but verifying information, um, and, you know, we had a lengthy discussion with them about that um, because, you know, people sometimes don't understand what the census is. And what the job is of the Complete Count Committee is to put information out there that is perfectly safe. Your information is never shared. Nobody's going to ask you for credit card information. There's no chance of being defrauded in any way. Because in this age, Ann, as you've seen yourself, um, in, in the digital age, and especially now with this, this big push to do the census through an online format to help speed it up a little bit, people get very edgy about their personal information being used online or being accessed. Um, you know, the, the bad actors out there are always coming up with clever ways to build people, and people are, are wary of that. And the, 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 the negative net effect could be that people simply do not participate. Uh, my father-in-law worked as a supervisor for the last census. He was in retirement, and it was his job to kind of take the hard cases, people who utterly refused to respond. And so he would go out into the world, 
And he, he tells a story about this one place they couldn't get a response, and there is a cable across the road that had a very stark warning, <laughs> you know, no trespassing. Um, and he said, I, I walked up to that cable, and he said, I took one step over the cable, and I heard a bullhorn. It's like, one more step, and I will, I'll start shooting. Yipes. And he said, no, who are you and what do you want? He said, I'm from the census. He said, I don't want any get out of here. And I had all the government I could stand when I was in Vietnam. And my father-in-law was a Vietnam veteran. And so he said, well, I'm a Vietnam veteran. So they start talking about their service. And he finally said, look, I'm going to make this easy for you. How many people live here? And the guy in the bullhorn, that's it? He said, that's it. That's all I want to know. How many people live here? And it's really information that you know is pretty much that simple. And is you know, Margot was articulating some of the other politics that come in on the census, like the the discussion about citizenship questions, um, and you get into the developed census numbers, which are always they're not you know this is the census year, but the census is always updating information, and you know they're looking for you know data that is then later utilized for analysis for a lot of different things. It's never personalized. They're looking for broad metadata about things like education, um, you know, health, overall age, and that sort of thing. And these are numbers that the federal government uses to judge the effectiveness of programs and to establish new ones. So, uh, Mar- Margo, how, what is the timeline? How is this going to roll out now? Well, um, you know, the census day is April 1st. That's the, in the statute, that's the, you know, in the, what they call Title 13 is the federal statute. So that's the official date. So um, we will have a sort of a, a, a PR role out in Alaska in a, couple, in a week or so uh, as a, in, to get people sort of focused where the census director will go to a remote Alaskan village uh, basically to count people before, before they disperse for the hunting season and the hunting and fishing season. Most of us will get a, um, will start getting a form in the mail at our household. In other words, these are, we're going to still use a, um, a household delivery mechanism and with a code that says you can go on the internet and fill this out for your household. Here's a phone number. If, um, if you want a paper form, we'll send you a paper form. And then uh, if you, uh, if and, and the Census Bureau has a, basically 100-plus million addresses on a list that they have to account for. So what they hope is that most of us will answer on the Internet, by phone, or on paper in April promptly, you know, basically about 10 questions, age, race, sex, you know, whether you own or rent your house, address, name, and so forth. And then they will do. Then they will do what is called response, non-response follow-up. Chase down all the addresses that they don't get an answer from, say by May. Um, and that's the that's the uh, the phase that the hard what they call the hard to count phase. <clears throat> and they that's when the enumerators go out to the addresses that have not yet responded and try to find out why. Was the address wrong? Did people throw it out and think it was? Um, you know, junk mail, uh, whatever, whatever the problem is, and then and and essentially get the information that way, and that will go on again until 
you know, into the spring and early summer. There are some evaluation studies that they do along with that. But basically then this things sort of go into a black box by the fall uh, until December when the official numbers are tallied up and reported to the president and Congress for reapportionment. So April 1st being Census Day and mm-hmm. this Internet First strategy being the mm-hmm. way we're deploying, are there going to be like a gazillion people trying to log on to the system on April 1st? And how, yep. how's that going to hold up? <laughs> no, that's, that's going to be the uh, challenge. I mean, as far as I know, uh, there isn't a, uh, a phase-in um, in the sense that, like, you can you can sign up on Tuesday, but you people over here have to wait till Wednesday. Nothing like that. As far as I know, anybody, every the system is supposed to take anybody's response anytime they give it. Um, and that's, of course, the, the quest, that's the cybersecurity and the, 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 the sheer capacity of the system. Are, are census watchers satisfied that that's been tested and is going to hold up, or are people worried about that? Well, you let's put it this way: they 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 experimented with it in the dress rehearsal or the you know the, the pre-census test in Rhode Island uh, in 2018. But if you weren't worried, you're you've got your head in the sand. Okay. You have to be worried about this. And the census usually manages these problems, these these unforeseen issues. You know. Um, I can tell you about fires in census offices, you know, or, or, you know, or floods or various things over the years. They use redundancy as a technique. In other words, they have backups of, uh, upon backups upon backups. And so hopefully all those systems will work. They do have teams of people watching for um, uh, cybersecurity threats and hackers and misinformation campaigns. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. And how how do they collect data on people with no fixed address, like homeless people? Or, homeless. Okay. Well, yeah. they, there are also a whole series of um, you know what they call special populations um, uh, provisions. So there are um, they they work in again in contact with with local officials to say where would you know to to, to count homeless shelters, people who live on the streets. Um, and, and and ask for local knowledge to, to, about doing that, and so those will those provisions will go, go into effect in late March, early April as well, with with you know with enumerators, live interviewers. Um, um, the what they call the group quarters population, people who live in some sort of institutional setting, and it could be anything from a college dorm to a prison to a hospital, and so forth. That's also a separate counting operation. Hmm. So, Matt, uh, what, what is the state gearing up for on April 1st? What's the rollout plan that you and your colleagues are working on? We've been working on different ways to, to contact our client populations in state government because, you know, you have all these different state agencies with different clientele and, and what are the different ways that we can reach out to people and, and let them know um, that the census is coming and that it's almost here and that it's something that they should uh, participate in. One of the vectors that we're exploring is utilizing our, our, all of our respective websites integrated through main.gov, um, putting up posters in the motor vehicle offices, which, by the way, I have always said no to. If it's not highway safety, we don't put it up. But in this case, 
um, you know, we've agreed to, to make an exception and put out some information about the census uh, using our, our um, Secretary of State kids page on the internet. Uh, we, you know, oftentimes you reach, a, you know, difficult to contact populations through their children because the kids are going to school. They'll bring this information home. They'll see it online and they'll ask their parents about it and make their parents aware. And this is something that, uh, and and Margo can speak to this more expertly than I can, but one of the real at-risk areas for undercount are children and young people. Um, you know, sometimes people don't think to count, um, you know, their newborn baby um, as a member of the family when they're doing their, doing their responses. They think of themselves, you know, they think of the, them personally, maybe the, maybe their grandparents or whatever, they sometimes forget to add in their own children, believe it or not. Um, and th- these are the populations, I think, that are most affected by undercounts in the census because they're the ones that so much government service is driven at, including things like education, transportation, et cetera. So, you know, we're working on a whole host of different ideas to do outreach to folks, um, you know, having... Uh, public discussions, uh, forums, bringing in public officials like myself, so having sort of town hall meetings, um, sending, putting information uh, in different, putting out information in different ways, like maybe having a flyer that you put in grocery bags in the local grocery stores, that sort of thing. Um, just different ways to reach people, uh, be not and not just on April 1st, but in the entire run-up to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also after, when they start doing the follow-ups to, to make sure they... They don't have any undercounts. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Margot Anderson, Distinguished Professor Emerita of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Matt Dunlap, Maine Secretary of State and Chair of Maine's Complete Count Committee. Our topic today is Census 2020, Everyone Counts. If you have a question or a comment, you can email us now at news at weru.org, and we'll put your question on the air. So, um, you know, thinking about, I, I don't know where I read this statistic, but Margo, maybe you can verify it for me. Something like $15,000 of funding per person from the federal government, if, there's, if you're not counted, is that about right? Uh, I, I <laughs> offhand wouldn't wouldn't want to bet my career on that one, um, <laughs> but there are. I mean, the, there is um, <clears throat> there's a researcher at George Washington University named Andrew Reamer who has actually gone through all the federal statutes and programs and figured out how much uh, money moves around because of census numbers, and it's 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 like a trillion dollars a year. <laughs> it's some a lot of, of money. And some of that comes to the state and some of it comes yes. to communities. I yeah. mean, I, I think I saw some community in Maine that had like a mascot that was going around trying to promote census participation in town. Are, are Maine towns organizing, in, you know, to make sure that their town gets a complete count? Matt, is that happening? We have a lot of town complete count committees. Old Town has one. Bangor has one. Many, many towns have them, and I don't have the list in front of me, but I think we have something like 140 entities right now that have established complete count committees, and probably about two-thirds of those are towns, which yeah. is great. 
Um, it really make, it really helps amplify the work. You know, and as Margot said, I mean, you know, this this historically was very federally driven, but now uh, it requires a lot more um, assistance at the local and state level just to make sure that we don't miss anything. And that includes, you know, using any vector we can to get information uh, from us as individual citizens into this census document, which will really predicate how the government runs for the next 10 years. Is it, I mean, if this works, you know, if we have a clean census, if it is generally successful, I mean, isn't this going to create sort of a trend for funding for the future where the federal government is going to want to take less responsibility for uh, it and foist it no, off on? Uh, that I don't think so. Good. But, um, don't forget, because of the constitutional grounding of all this, it's, it's a federal function, and it will stay that way. Um, and believe me, you know, the, in the 18th century, they sat around and said, well, could we have the states and local areas count, the, count themselves? <clears throat> and the answer even then was um, no. No, it has to be done by the national government for sort of credibility, right? Because mm-hmm. you need, um, you need a, <clears throat> a national focus. <clears throat> Let me add one thing about how, uh, about how we're going to know how we're doing, how well we're doing as the days go on. The Census Bureau started doing this in, at the 2000 Census, and it's worked, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I think, very, very well, which is, you know, they have this 100-plus million address list, right, um, that they're using, um, which is geocoded down to the household level. And when they get a form in, <clears throat> either by mail or by phone or on the Internet or, or in person, they check that household address code off the form off their master list, and they can then draw maps day-to-day of the uh, how close they've gotten to 100%, not counting people, but counting the addresses. Yep. And that, and they will post that every day um, starting April 1st or April 2nd. So that's public information. Oh, yeah, and it's, a, it's right on the web, Census Bureau website, and so every citizen, person, local mayor, town council member will be able to go in in real time and say, oh, my gosh, my neighborhood is up to, you know, is behind this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then say, come on, folks, let's get, you know, you know, we're, we're, let's, let's have Ellsworth and Portland uh, and Bangor compete for who could get the most in fastest. Yep. <laughs> now, in a state like Maine, which is so rural, yeah. Uh, and which where we don't even another subject we don't even have broadband statewide i mean how is this internet first thing going to disadvantage a state like maine or will it i'm well, gonna i think <clears throat> i'm gonna let the, the mainers and answer that one <laughs> well of course you know you get into the rural areas it's a huge challenge and i think that you know the the plans for the census really do address that because they are still going to have people going out you know they're they're hiring right now with pretty good salaries available and it's very flexible you do it when you have time have enumerators the old-fashioned way having people go out going door to door in those areas where they don't have good broadband or they don't have a good response rate and doing the hand count the way we always used to I, I do think we anticipate a pretty high level of participation using the online survey, um, as high as 85%. And, but that's still a significant amount of work between now 
and the census day to get in those folks who will not have that connectivity available to them either at their town library or individually. Um, and as, as broadband is still lagging behind and what we hope it w- will do, it is expanding and people do have access in places they didn't 10 years ago. So um, we're still hopeful that a lot of people will be able to utilize the online tool and, you know, really making people aware that it's coming, whether it's through the, the paper form or the online tool or an individual uh, census taker, you know, the, the enumerators that are going to be going out there and, and uh, coming up to your door. Um, part of the biggest part of what we try to convey to folks is that, you know, we're never going to ask you for financial information. We're never going to ask you for a credit card number. And if somebody does, they're not real and they should be reported to the police. But um, the census itself is perfectly safe and your information is kept private. None of the census information that is collected can be released for 70 years. Um, and, of course, genealogists always look forward with great anticipation to the next release of a 70-year-old decennial census. And this information that is incredibly valuable for historic reference. Uh, in terms of how we have gotten to where we are today. Um, but that's something else that people should bear in mind, why this is important. As we, be, as we examine in public policy the, the trendings that dictate how policies are formed, we often look at historic models, and that's someone's going to be looking at what we're doing now in the next that's, seven decades and, and try to build something from it. So. Our topic today is Census 2020. Everyone counts. If you have a question or comment, you can email us now at news at weru.org, and we'll put your question on the air. Matt, you re, uh, referred just a moment ago to the role that libraries can play. And Margot, maybe you can talk a little bit about that, too. Um, you know, libraries as an institution in our communities, how is it planned that they're going to have a special role this year? Well, the libraries. Um, the American Library Association <clears throat> has uh, sort of partnered with um, federal officials in the Census Bureau to build um, access, make sure that you know local library access will be available for people who want to come in and don't want to fill the form out, you know, um, on a private device to build the security into that and so forth. So the I've I've done already a fair number of talks at libraries uh, around the country uh, precisely to get because the librarians are very much uh, involved in all of this and, and sort of see it as a as part of their public service functions and it, that's going to be very true in Maine too isn't it Matt absolutely uh, we have a lot of libraries involved and you know some of them have established their own complete count committees and others are part of, of the, the, the more community oriented complete count committees but like in old town where i live um the libraries where a lot of people go for internet access who don't have it at home so that kind of that was one of the first things i thought of when you asked me about internet access is that a lot of communities that's where people get online is at their library if they don't have if they live in a really far-flung rural area where you know inter- internet is very difficult to obtain there's oftentimes computers at a local library that people can get online and they can do this kind of work. And, and uh, that'll be a huge, huge role for them to play in this. Let's talk for one minute more about a couple topics that I still like to um, explore a little bit more. One, one is immigrants and citizenship. 
you know, the citizenship question is now blocked. But then I also read that there was a Department of Homeland Security decision to share citizenship data from their database with the Census Bureau. And um, then thinking at the same time, if immigrants are going to make a big difference in how states are counted more accurately, are translators and um, second language access being planned into this as well, Margo? Uh, just take a yeah, couple uh, of those. The, yes. I mean, by the way, this is, a, this is still a great unknown because there is a kind of sort of hangover of the citizenship controversy that um, is very concerning to people who are now trying to do the get-out-the-count effort. Um, you know, whether people actually know that there won't be a citizenship question, for example. What the Census Bureau has done, and, and, has, and again, this has been ramped up uh, over the decades, is build, as, as particularly as the United States has become more demographically diverse in terms of immigration, is build their um, promotional materials into many, many different languages and uh, hire specialists so that if you call the Census Bureau on the phone, for example, and you want somebody to speak to you in Urdu, they will get you someone to talk to you in Urdu. Or, you know, um, and so the, the, um, and the immigration um, uh, sort of lobbyists, lobbying groups, representatives of immigrant, immigrant communities have been very, very active in both providing resources and, and, or, and trying to network these questions um, up. Um, uh, you can go to the Census Bureau website now, and I think, it's, I think you can find the, the, the sort of promotional messages of something like 50 different languages, including many, many um, non-Latin uh, scripts, Chinese, you know, Indian languages, uh, Eastern European, uh, Cyrillic, uh, Arabic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are major efforts to do that. Um, you know, uh, they research these issues. The Bureau researches this stuff on, on an ongoing basis, and hopefully it will work. Well, now we're hearing some sort of follow-on to this whole citizenship question mm-hmm. in the in the census in terms of redistricting with people saying, mm-hmm. now, I mean, historically, congressional districts have been drawn by the, the sheer count regardless mm-hmm. of voter eligibility status but now or citizenship even but now we hear some people talking about drawing the districts counting only citizens in the district and mm-hmm. now i think i heard um some rumor that they were going to draw congressional districts based on voting eligible population which would be a huge change mm-hmm. and would significantly i would think disadvantaged states with a lot of um with a lot of immigrant yeah, population this is an old controversy um and what um believe it or not the one time that the census was not used to reapportion congress by the way was in the 1920s a period of you know very high immigration levels right after world war one congress refused to reapportion itself and one of the proposals at that point um and the justifications they used was to say that aliens shouldn't be part of the population used to uh, allocate representation to the House. And they actually proposed a constitutional amendment to make that the case. Uh, it never went anywhere, and we got out of the, you know, the what we call, what is called the reapportionment crisis a different way. But it's an old problem um, because, and it, if you read, if you go all the way back to the 18th century, you see. Um, the framers debating this 
uh, the distinction, if you will, between the politically active and enfranchised population and the total population, which is a very big difference. And, of course, it was originally probably a slave count question. Yep. Right? Indians, slaves, women, children, yep. aliens, right? They yep. debated it all. And in the, in the Constitutional Convention, they basically said the census will count everyone except what was called Indians not taxed. Mm. Those were Indians who owed their political sovereign, you know, political authority to their tribal communities rather than to the United States. But everyone else, including all slaves, were counted. And of course, were discounted for in the formula, but they were counted. And three-fifths of a person, if I remember correctly. Right, right, that's right, that's right. Three-fifths compromise. Now, the the tribes are all in now, though, right? I mean, that question is is gone. Yeah, and that was, but that didn't change until the early 20th century. Are are the tribes a hard-to-count community? Yes. Yeah. Right? Um, Any, um, you know, any community that is not, you know, that doesn't feel... uh, that its government is terribly supportive of them and suspicious, as you've said, as we, as we heard about the Vietnam vet who didn't want to answer, will, um, will, will be difficult to count. And, that's, and they'll change. I mean, there were religious minorities that also were very reluctant to be counted in the census over the, you know, over the course of, the, of, of American history. So, Margo, what, would it take a constitutional um, amendment to change the basis for redistricting to include uh, some of these? No, well, the court, there's, there's a Supreme Court case from a couple of years ago named Evanball where they essentially sidestepped the issue. And um, the, the advocates for um, apport, using what is called the citizen voting age population, in other words, only people who are 18 and older and citizens and not felons right, yep. would be part of the politically um, po- the numbers used for political allocation. Right? There are court cases, and I expect court cases after this census uh, about that issue. At this point, it's um, you know there's a political difference on it. Yep, your but tune- it has not. You know the courts have not sanctioned that. Yep. What is called CVAP. Citizen voting age population. That has not uh, been sanctioned. Yeah, that's an ongoing debate. All right, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. We're coming into the last part of our show. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Margo Anders- Anderson, Distinguished Professor Emerita of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and Matt Dunlap, Maine's 49th Secretary of State, who also happens to chair the state's Complete Count Committee. Um, before we sort of get into my wrap-up questions, I just want to do one more little bit about data security and backup, you know, like in the election world where the League of Women Voters lives, you know, verified paper ballots, you know, paper ballots are... Um, you know, so important to us in this particular case, because we're doing a lot of this electronically, that seems to introduce an element of risk that those source documents um, could be compromised, hacked, whatever you think. I mean, has this been an area of controversy among census watchers? Uh not that I've heard. Yeah, no, not that I mean, I've heard. I think this is actually part of a of a larger risk area beyond 
malefactors is the real challenge that faces record keepers around what we call born digital records. And this, you know, never mind my hat that I wear as an elections official, but as the state's chief records officer, and we have the state archives, um, this is something that we've been grappling with now for about 15 years, and we're not alone. Um, what, how do you preserve digital records? And this is, this is something the federal government's been working on separately from the census now for quite some time. And we're in a much better place than we were. We're, we're, we have much better uh, electronic um, solutions and uh, the the, the protocols around preserving and digitizing records, records either that were paper records and making them available more broadly to the public, but also, you know, these digital records, you know, preserving them. Now, um, we got onto this uh, at some point, like I say, my first few years as Secretary of State, when we discovered, somewhat to our horror, that um, most of the middle school assessment tests uh, that I took in the 70s are gone. They, you know, they, that's when we had to fill out the bubble sheets. I don't know if you remember the bubble sheets. Very um, well. And when we were in school and they did all these standardized tests to see where we were, um, and they were all fed into a computer, and they were put on these magnetic disks, and eventually they they issued their reports, what have you, and then the disks were sent to the archives, and then just doing some searching on them, found out they, they had all been corrupted. Over they, they were never meant to last as an archival record. And You're not building our confidence here, Matt. Well, I mean, this is, this is where we get the lessons learned, and this is why we've been working on it. And, um, you know, I have said for a long time that unless we get a good solution to these problems, what we're facing is the is the moral equivalent of the burning of the library at Alexandria. We could lose the entire information of an age. Now, the good news is the systems are far more robust than they were ten years ago, and I have a I, I have a very high level of confidence that the records that are going to be generated through this system on the census will be preserved and will be made accessible in formats. Uh, that will be needed for generations to come. And I think that's, you know, just where we've gone in the last 10 years as opposed to where we were when I first came into the job. Um, and we were looking at wholesale destruction of what should be permanent records just by sheer evaporation on the Internet, if you will. Before we um, I give you a, a chance each to offer some parting thoughts, I want to ask, let's start with you, Margo. If you're an ordinary citizen listening to this program with some concern, um, you know, what are your obligations as, as a citizen or your opportunities to have an impact on having this work out well? Go ahead, Margo. Well, uh, one is to talk to your neighbors um, and watch for your census form coming. Um, join, see if your community has a complete, complete count committee. Um, get on it <laughs> if you have some time and whatever. Um, and... The, and and just in some sense to sort of pay attention for the next couple months. Um, make sure you fill out your own form, and you can um, do that for your. You can encourage your friends and neighbors to do that, and you can also encourage them to say, "Look, once you do this, I won't talk to you about this for another ten years." <laughs> Matt, what advice would you add to that, if any? Well, I think for the for the citizen who may still be scratching their head about all this, and and really wondering what it means to them and why it should be important to them, uh, I guess my response is 
if you have questions, then ask them. Um, go online. Go to 2020census.gov and, and see what exactly it is we're talking about. Look at, the, look, look at what the facts are about the census, who the census takers are in your area, and how the count is conducted, what it means, you know, how your information is protected, uh, why it's important. Don't, don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. You're an American citizen. You have the right to know, and the information is there for you to access. And if you need help, we'll help you find it. Margo, do you have a website for the place we can go to see how our town is doing once this gets going? Um, I do, but I don't have it handy, but I can certainly send you the URL for it. If you email it to us after the show, we'll post it on our website for the, for the program so that people can follow along once things yes, get going. that's a good idea. All right, well, we are running out of time this afternoon. I want to give both of you a chance to offer some parting thoughts. Matt, wrap it up for us. Well, you know, the, this, is, this, this census year will set the table in how we work as communities for the next 10 years. Um, I think that, you know, it's, so, it's such a simple process to participate. You know, the, the, the years that I've been in this community and I've filled out a census form the old-fashioned way using a pen and paper, it's been a one-page form. It took me literally five minutes. I think it'll take less time to do it online, and the information helps inform uh, how our how our bridges are built, how our road needs are allocated, how our education funding is sent around the country. And I mean, you said something like fifteen thousand dollars per person. I would argue it's probably more than that uh, in terms of the of the telescoping impact over the generations. And it takes you no time to do it. It's 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 actually believe it or not it may be even simpler than voting, and these are one of those ways as an American citizen you can have a tremendous impact in your community just by waving your hand and saying you know I'm over here. Margo, put this in long term view perspective for us and um, give us some parting thoughts of your own. Okay, well as I started with uh, this is the twenty fourth time that we've done that done this. Um, the um, census, you know, the first one was in 1790, long before Maine was, even existed as a state, uh, and the um, and it's been done uh, every 10 years, despite wars and economic crises, including the Civil War, right? World War One, World War Two. We we've managed to do it every decade, and it is a unobtrusive event, unlike an election, a federal election, um, presidential in particular, where we've only had. I think 58 presidential elections. Um, we've had 20. We're going to have the 24th census. Um, it, it, the, the, it doesn't loom large in people's day-to-day lives at the time, but as Matt is suggesting, it has tremendous sort of deep impact in how we organize um, our society, and it has allowed America to go from a population of um, and the cooperation of Americans. The American population from 3.9 million people to well over 333 million now to spread across the country to uh, document the diversity and the growth and the change in the economics and stuff. And so that in some ways, uh, you know, the standard um, uh, uh, tagline that the Census Bureau uses to stand up and be counted um, and to be counted with in their other tagline is to you, you only can, you, we want to count you once, only once. <laughs> And in the right place where you you know where you live, 
and use that for the next 10 years when we'll be back. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to hear you talk today, also, Margo, about this is not the first time that the census has been controversial. There have mm-hmm. been cheating scandals and controversies before. Mm-hmm. It's all part of the story, right? Oh, it is. It is. And we, as I said, there's also a, um, as which I will roll out fairly soon, a great deal of uh, comedy routines and poetry and uh, paintings and cartoonings, and um, which w- which comes around every ten years, where we'll sort of see how previous generations of Americans have uh, thought about this. I mean, there's a Robert Frost poem from 1920. Uh, there's a great Saturday Night Live, a couple great Saturday Night Live skits. Um, that are, you'll see another one in a couple months. Uh, and it, it, so we've used this um, as a way of sort of marking the country and who we are um, and every 10 years. Every high school text, every, you know, every history textbook in the country has a population growth chart or map that's based on the census. Margo, I'm going to ask you if you have a moment to send us the links to those SNL skits and to the Robert Frost poems because we'll, we'll post those on our, on our website as well. Well, we have two, two minutes to go. Oh, we ran up, ran up a little early today, so you've got time to make some more comments here. Um, Matt, if, um, does the state have a website where people can go to find complete count information? Let me put that one up. Uh, I will actually, I will get that to you. I don't have it right here in front of me, but we, we do have a complete count uh, aspect of the, of the 2020 census.gov website so people can find out what's going on in their communities. And we should start to look for material inviting us to um, participate in the census about when? Probably here within the next month or so. Uh, before April 1st, right? Before April 1st, absolutely. You'll oh, have, yeah. And people will be given access codes uh, for their addresses to enter their information into the census they, if they choose to do it online. Great. Well, I'll look for that. And in every venue where you go, you can ask everybody you see, did you do your census form, right? Absolutely. I mean, it really is just that important. Uh, without it, uh, you know, the, the reason why we've been doing a census in whatever country was in power, wherever it was in the world now for thousands of years. Remember, that's why Joseph and Mary were going to Bethlehem oh, to register, right. <laughs> the, uh, you know, their citizenship. So good point, man. N- nothing new. There's nothing new about it at all. Well, now we are out of time. I want to thank you to our guest this afternoon, Margo Anderson, Distinguished Professor Emerita of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and author of the book, The American Census, A Social History. Also joining us was Matt Dunlap, Maine's 49th Secretary of State, now serving his fourth consecutive term, seventh term overall. Matt also chairs the state's Complete Count Committee. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer today at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to find those links probably starting um, early next week to learn about other shows in this series. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you back here on February 21st with a new show. You are listening to your community radio.